Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 158 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up in this week's episode, we have news that a regulator in Germany has questioned whether Zoom in its on-demand form is GDPR compliant. We then look at an issue raised by the ICO here in the UK that pub apps, which are being used as part of the COVID track and trace, are actually gathering too much data. We then travel to the US, where we have news of a data breach at T-Mobile. And remain in the US, a large amount of data, which is purported to come from telecoms operator AT&T, has been made available on the dark web. But AT&T denied that it's their data and denied that they've had any data breach. One company which certainly has a data breach is J.P. Morgan Chase. So we have some information about the J.P. Morgan Chase data breach. And we then return to the UK where there's some exciting news because the ICO is introducing the first GDPR-related certification schemes. It's something which those of us who are GDPR practitioners have long been calling on the ICO to introduce. So the first three are now coming and let's hope that in coming months there will be more. We then have an update on the data breach which affected education company Pearson and Pearsons have now paid a $1 million penalty to the SEC in the USA following allegations that they misled their investors. We then have an update on the colonial data breach and also an update on the Blackboard data breach. We then have news of the results of a tribunal case which was raised by doorstep dispensaries who if you've got a long memory, you might remember were the first company to be fined by the UK ICO for GDPR breaches. And doorstep dispensaries have succeeded at the tribunal in getting a substantial reduction in the penalties imposed by the ICO. Remaining with the ICO, we then look at the consultation which they've launched on its replacement for the EU standard contractual clauses. And then finally this week, we travel to Gibraltar and look at Gibraltar GDPR. So as always, a wide mix of articles for you this week. We hope you find the information useful and informative. As always, if you have any feedback for us, please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive, and wherever possible, we incorporate your suggestions for improvements into the show. Unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback we receive, it's not always possible for us to respond to each piece of feedback individually. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. We begin this week with news that a German data watchdog has warned public sector organisations against using the on-demand version of the hugely popular video conferencing tool Zoom, which of course has become even more popular as we've all been coping with the COVID-19 pandemic and working from home, etc., and having to hold many more virtual meetings. Now, it should be said that this alleged vulnerability only applies to the on-demand version of Zoom, i.e. the one that lets you have unlimited conversations between two people or 40 minutes conversation between more than two people. It doesn't apply to any copies of Zoom which you actually subscribe to and pay a subscription for. So, returning to the free version, Hamburg's Acting Commissioner for Data Protection and Freedom of Information, Ulrich Kuhn, has warned the city Senate Chancellery that Zoom, the on-demand variant, doesn't meet the EU's criteria when it comes to data transfers. In the announcement, he referred to the European Court of Justice SREMS 2 ruling from July 2020, which of course we've covered previously here on the GDPR Weekly Show, 
which ruled that the EU-US agreement on data transfers called the Data Protection Shield, or in fact more commonly known as the Data Privacy Shield, is invalid due to concerns over US state and law enforcement agencies using it for surveillance. In the statement, he said, In the FHH, city of Hamburg, all employees have access to a tried and tested video conference tool that is unproblematic with regard to third country transmission. As a central service provider, Dataport also provides additional video conferencing systems in its own data centres. These are used successfully in other countries such as Schweizfried Holstein. It is therefore incomprehensible why the state chancery insists on an additional and legally highly problematic system. It's understood that the issue lies with the way that Zoom relies on standard contractual clauses, which again, of course, we've mentioned many times here on the GDPR Weekly Show, to justify its data transfers. Zoom claims it requires an explicit consent mechanism for EU users and has zero load cookies for users coming from an EU member state. We ensure that the transfer is governed by the European Commission's standard contractual clauses, Zoom said. Zoom went on to say, where personal data of users in the EEA, Switzerland or the UK is being transferred to a recipient located in a country outside of the EEA, Switzerland or the UK, which has not been recognised as having an adequate level of data protection, we ensure that the transfer is governed by the European Commission's standard contractual clauses. Zoom went on to say, Zoom is proud to work with the city of Hamburg and many other leading German organisations, businesses and education institutions. The privacy and security of our users are top priorities for Zoom and we take seriously the trust our users place in us. Zoom is committed to complying with all applicable privacy laws, rules and regulations in the jurisdictions within which it operates, including GDPR. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. One thing which has become common in the UK since the COVID-19 pandemic, and particularly since things started to open up again, is the use of apps in pubs and restaurants, but particularly pubs, to order drinks and food rather than needing to go to the bar to order them. However, the ICO has pointed out this week that a number of these apps are now exceeding their original function because the original function was that they would simply gather your name, your address, your telephone number, your email, and that it wasn't to be used for marketing purposes by the pub or pub chain, but was simply to be held for NHS track and trace so that if someone in the pub on the day you were there subsequently tested positive for Top ID 19, you could be notified via track and trace that you should have a test and isolate. However, this week, Suzanne Gordon, Director of Data Protection at the ICO, said, I think it's too easy to upload an app and straight away put your name, email address, payment details in without actually understanding fully where that information may be shared and why it's being used. She reminded venues that they should only ask for data that is relevant and necessary. She went on to say, ultimately, this is your data, it's your personal information, and you need to be confident when you're handing it over and the reasons why. Now, it has to be appreciated that the apps are welcomed by most customers, um, not just because they comply with COVID, but also because it's often much easier now. People find to order a round of drinks whilst you're still sitting at your table, rather than having to go and queue at the bar to do it. But of course, everything has, a, has an alternative side, and these apps are very popular with pub chains too, because they speed up the ordering process and they provide an additional way for the pub to interact with their customers. Apps now handle millions of pounds worth of transactions every day. And it looks as if they're here to stay. Even those pubs which are now back to allowing people to stand at the bar are still allowing people to use the app. The UK's four biggest pub chains, representing a quarter of the market, Weatherspoons, Green King, Mitchells and Butlers and Stonegate, 
all now have their own in-house app. The developers behind the apps for independent venues say they have seen a huge growth since the pandemic. They all say they follow the guidelines informing customers of their rights and how the data will be dealt with, but these terms and conditions are unlikely to be closely read by a lot of people. Most of these apps work by charging the venue a 2-3% transaction charge per order. In return, the technology streamlines the ordering process, but also offers the chance to learn a little more about the pub's customers. Chris Dunkley, director of an independent app called Hopped, said that once registered, ease of use makes it more likely that customers will have another drink or order an additional item of food. However, it's important not to tar all apps with the same brush because a number of apps have actually reduced the amount of data that they now gather. One example is Butler, which accounts for about a third of a pub's orders or more at weekends, but the amount of data the app collects has been reduced according to their co-founder Alex McKenzie. He said, when we had our first venues go live, it was quite a rigorous sign-up process, but the data we collect from individuals has gradually worn away now. We want to make it as simple and as easy as possible. Pras Sutton, chief executive of another app provider, Omvi, said his business also kept ordering as simple as possible. He said, we don't believe customers should have to hand over excessive personal information just to grab a pint at a pub. They're going for a drink, not applying for a mortgage. If we get any further updates on this from the ICO, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, then you might remember that back in episode 125, we brought you details of a data breach at T-Mobile. Well, this week, there's been another data breach at T-Mobile, this time in the USA, where more than 40 million T-Mobile customers have been hit by a data breach. The company blamed the breach on a highly sophisticated cyber attack. It said it is taking immediate steps to help protect all the individuals who may be at risk from this cyber attack. The firm said that while criminals stole personal information, no financial details were leaked as a result. The breach only came to light following online reports last weekend that criminals were attempting to sell a large database containing T-Mobile customer data online. The US telecom giant confirmed that hackers had gained access to its systems on Monday. Late last week, we were informed of claims made in an online forum that a bad actor had compromised our systems, it said. We immediately began an exhaustive investigation into these claims and brought in world-leading cybersecurity experts to help with our assessment. We then located and immediately closed the access point that we believe was used to illegally gain entry to our servers. The company said its investigations identified approximately 7.8 million current T-Mobile postpaid customer accounts information in the stolen files, as well as just over 40 million records of former or prospective customers who had previously applied for credit with T-Mobile. It said that approximately 850,000 active T-Mobile prepaid customer names, phone numbers and account pins were also exposed, but it had reset all the pins on the accounts to protect customers. It added that no phone numbers, account numbers, pins, passwords or financial information were compromised in any of the files of customers or prospective customers. We take our customers' protection very seriously and we will continue to work around the clock on this forensic investigation to ensure we are taking care of our customers in light of this malicious attack, T-Mobile said. While our investigation is ongoing, we wanted to share these initial findings even as we may learn additional facts through our investigation that draws details above to change or evolve. There is no indication at the moment that UK customers of T-Mobile have been affected by the breach. If we receive any update on this breach from T-Mobile, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Staying in the USA and telecoms operator AT&T said they did not suffer a data breach after a well-known threat actor claimed to be saying a database contained the personal information of 70 million AT&T customers. 
The threat actor, known as Shiny Hunters, began selling the database yesterday on a hacking form with a starting price of $200,000 and incremental offers of $30,000. The hacker said they would be willing to sell it immediately for $1 million. From the samples shared by the threat actor, the database in question contains customers' names, addresses, phone numbers, social security numbers and date of birth. An independent threat actor who's examined the data said that only two of the four people in the samples were confirmed to have accounts at AT&T, which would support AT&T's claim that the data did not come from them. In a statement, AT&T said, Based on our investigation, the information that appeared in the internet chat room does not appear to come from our systems. When asked whether the data could have come from a third-party partner, AT&T said they wouldn't speculate. Given this information did not come from us, we can't speculate on where it came from or whether it's valid, an AT&T spokesperson said. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. Remaining in the USA, but this time turning to the banking sector, American banking and financial services company J.P. Morgan Chase is warning customers in Montana that a technical glitch may have presented their personal data to other customers. The malfunction allowed users of the website chase.com or the Chase mobile app to view the banking information of other customers whose personal data was similar to theirs for nearly two months earlier this year. Data that may have been compromised include customers' names, account numbers, account balances and details of their transactions. We learned of a technical issue here that we may have mistakenly allowed another customer with similar personal information to see your account information on Chase.com or in the Chase mobile app or receive your account statements, said J.P. Morden Chase in a data breach notification letter via, uh, via the Montana Attorney General's website. The data breach was reported to the Montana Office of the Attorney General on August the 13th this year as having begun on May the 24th and ended on July the 14th. J.B. Morgan Chase advised customers the other customer might have seen information about your account, including balances and transactions, as well as your name and account number. The bank said no evidence has been found to suggest that the personal information of customers who were impacted by the data breach has been used inappropriately. Customers were informed that they will not be held liable for any fraudulent activity on your Chase accounts that you promptly told them about, and were encouraged to check their accounts regularly for suspicious activity. After apologising for the accidental data exposure, J.P. Morden Chase offered the seven customers who were impacted by the breach one year of free credit reporting. The data breach is the second to be reported to Montana Office of the Attorney General by J.P. Morden Chase. Last year, the company notified two customers that between April and November 2020, a call centre employee may have allowed an unauthorised third party to overhear phone calls in which personal information about their Chase account was shared. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Returning to the UK now, and in what will be seen as a very welcome move, and indeed something GDPR practitioners like ourselves have been calling for since GDPR first came into being, is that the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office, has approved the first UK GDPR certification scheme criteria. Certification works by providing a framework for organisations to follow, which offers clients and customers assurance that they are adhering to strong standards. Organisations with expertise in a particular area can develop scheme criteria. The ICO has approved the criteria for three schemes which will now be rolled out. The first, called ADISA, A-D-I-S-A, covers experts in IT asset disposal services who have developed a standard that ensures personal data has been handled appropriately when IT equipment is reused or destroyed. The second is the Age Check Certification Scheme, the ACCS. 
who have developed criteria for two schemes, the first relating to age assurance and the second related to children's online privacy, which is largely using the age-appropriate design code, which is something which we covered back in episode 155 of the GDPR Weekly Show. Organisations that achieve the standards set out in these certification schemes can create a competitive advantage and demonstrate that they have the highest level of commitment to data protection and compliance to their customers, partners and investors. Anorka Clark, Acting Director of Regulatory Assurance of the ICO, said this is a significant step forward in enabling organisations to demonstrate their commitment to compliance with UK data protection law. The products and services these criteria cover, age assurance, age-appropriate design and asset disposal, are areas where enhanced trust and accountability in how personal data is protected is vital. Enabling certification in these areas establishes a binding framework that organisations can sign up to. This will raise the bar of data protection and ensure they are always following the latest good practice in these constantly evolving areas and, importantly, they are able to demonstrate that commitment to their clients, suppliers and the public. Tony Allen, Chief Executive of the Age Check Certification Scheme, said, We've been pleased to work with the ICO, often on a pathfinding mission for this new process, to create the first approved certification schemes and we're really looking forward to working with the booming identity and age assurance tech industry in the UK and around the world to bring the scheme to life. Steve Mannings, founder of ADISA, said, Certification schemes can really help data controllers put their trust in the process. We believe that this achievement for the ADISA ICT Asset Recovery Standard 8.0 will make data controllers' life much easier, as by building it into their vendor specification, they can be assured that their data processes or sub-processes are being measured against criteria which have been approved by the ICO. The ICO is keen to talk to and advise organisations interested in developing certification schemes. For more information, please visit the ICO website at ico.org.uk. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. If you're a regular listener to GDPR Weekly Show, you might remember that back in episode 51, we mentioned about a data breach at London-based publishing and education giant Pearson. Pearson, which provides software to schools and universities, has agreed to pay $1 million to settle charges that it misled investors about a 2018 data breach resulting in the theft of millions of student records. The US Securities and Exchange Commission announced the settlement on Monday after the agency found that Pearson had made misleading statements and omissions about the data breach, which saw millions of student usernames and scrambled passwords stolen, along with administrator login credentials of 13,000 schools, district and university customer accounts. The SEC said that in Pearson's semi-annual review filed in July 2019, the company referred to the incident as a hypothetical risk even after the data breach had happened. Likewise, in a statement that same month, Pearson said the breach may include dates of birth and email addresses when it knew that such records were stolen. Pearson also said that it had strict protections in place when it actually took the company six months to patch the vulnerability after it was notified. As the order finds, Pearson opted not to disclose this breach to investors until it was contacted by the media, and even then Pearson understated the nature and scope of the incident and overstated the company's state of protection, said Christina Lippmann, chief of the SEC Enforcement Division Cyber Unit. As public companies face a growing threat of cyber intrusions, they must provide accurate information to investors about material cyber incidents. Notably, Pearson did not admit wrongdoing as part of the settlement, but Pearson agreed to pay a $1 million penalty, a small fraction of the $489 million in pre-tax profits that the company made last year. A Pearson spokesperson said, We are pleased to resolve this matter with the SEC. 
We also appreciate the work of the FBI and the Justice Department to identify and charge those responsible for a global cyber attack that affected Pearson and many other companies and industries, including at least one government agency. Pearson said the breach related to its AIMS Web 1.0 web-based software for entering and tracking students' academic performance, which had retired in July 2019. Pearson continues to enhance its cybersecurity effort to minimise the risk of cyber attacks in an ever-changing threat landscape, Pearson's spokesperson said. Another update for our regular listeners. Back in episodes 147 and 148, we brought you news of the data breach at the Colonial Pipeline in the USA. This week, Colonial Pipeline, the largest fuel pipeline in the US, is sending notification letters to individuals affected by the data breach, resulting from the dark side ransomware attack that hit the network in May. The company says that it recently learned that dark side operators were also able to collect and exfiltrate documents containing personal information of a total of 5,810 individuals during their attack. Impacted personal info for the affected individuals ranges from names and contact details to health and ID information. The affected records contain certain personal information such as name, contact information, date of birth, government-issued ID such as social security, military ID, tax ID and driver's licence numbers, and house-related information, including house insurance information, Colonial Pipeline revealed in the data breach notification letters. However, as the Pipeline System CEO and President Joseph A. Blount Jr. adds, not all this information was stolen for each affected individual. So just to remind you what happened, the Dark Side ransomware gang hit the networks of Colonial Pipeline, which provides roughly half of all the fuel on the U.S. East Coast, on May the 6th. During the incident, Darkside operators also stole roughly 100 gigabytes of files from breached Colonial Pipeline systems in about two hours. On May the 7th, the Colonial Pipeline company learned that it was a victim of a cybersecurity attack, Colonial Pipeline said. In response, we proactively took certain systems offline to contain the threat, which temporarily halted all pipeline operations and affected some of our IT systems. Colonial Pipeline shutdown was followed by the Department of Transportation's Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, the FMCSA determined the state of emergency in 17 states and the District of Columbia. The dark side ransomware gang abruptly shut down their operation after the group saw increased levels of attention from both media and the US government and law enforcement agencies. The decision to stop operations came after Colonial Pipeline paid $4.4 million worth of cryptocurrency for a decryptor, most of it later recovered by the FBI. If we receive any further update on this from Colonial or the US authorities, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. Another update for you now on the Blackboard data breach, which we first brought you details of back in episode 101 and subsequently updated in episodes 102, 103, 104, 106, 110 and 111. Well, this week, Blackboard, who suffered the ransomware attack back in 2020, in which it admitted paying a ransom in a double extortion attack, is facing multiple class action cases following the attack. The cases have been consolidated in multi-district litigation and now comprise 29 cases. The federal judge overseeing the cases has refused to dismiss all the claims that the plaintiffs alleged against Blackboard and ruled that Blackboard must face claims of violation of the California Consumer Privacy Act, the CCPA, deceptive and unfair trade practice allegations made by Florida and New York plaintiffs, and a separate claim by a California plaintiff alleging the compromise of medical information. The judge declared that the plaintiffs had sufficiently alleged 
the Blackboard was a business, as that term is defined in CCPA, partly because Blackboard was a registered data broker in the state of California. Now, obviously, it may well still be several months before these cases actually take place, but we will, of course, bring you updates whenever they do in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. Way back in episode 71 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we brought you news of the first fine imposed by the UK ICO on an organisation for a GDPR data breach. The organisation in question was Doorstep Dispensary Limited. Well, this week, the story of Doorstep Dispensary Limited took a further step forward. Doorstep Dispensary Limited had appealed against the judgment from the ICO. To give a bit of background, on 24th of July 2018, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Authority, the MHRA, executed a search warrant at premises which personal data was held for which Doorstep Dispensary Limited was the controller. The premises belonged to a waste disposal business tasked with destroying the material in the guise of the processor of that personal data. The MRHA seized at least 73,000 pieces of paper stored in unlocked crates, boxes and bags. Some of these contained personal data and special category house data. The MHRA informed the ICO of the position and the ICO requested information from Doorstep Dispensaries Limited in order to clarify the position. Doorstep Dispensaries Limited failed to comply with that request and so the ICO issued an information notice under Section 142 of the Data Protection Act 2018. Doorstep Dispensaries Limited unsuccessfully appealed against the terms of the information notice in January 2019. The investigation continued until the ICO issued a notice of intent to issue a monetary penalty to Doorstep Dispensary Limited in the sum of £400,000 and issued a preliminary enforcement notice with reference to Section 149 of the Data Protection Act 2018 in order to compel Doorstep Dispensaries Limited to prepare adequate data protection compliance policies. Doorstep Dispensaries Limited provided written submissions to the ICO in an attempt to dissuade them from finalising those actions, which were unsuccessful, as on 17 December 2019, the ICO then issued a formal monetary penalty notice under Section 155 of the Data Protection Act, imposing a fine of £275,000 and an enforcement notice. Doorstep Dispensaries Limited appealed both the fine imposed by the monetary penalty notice and the enforcement notice to the first tier tribunal. The tribunal issued its decision on the 9th of August 2021. So the issues which the tribunal looked at were, firstly, analysis of the appropriate burden of proof in data protection matters. The tribunal was asked to consider whether the burden of proof lay with the controller or the regulator with respect to allegations of non-compliance under GDPR. The question was therefore whether the ICO has to prove non-compliance by a controller or whether it's sufficient for the ICO to assert a failure to comply and for the burden of proof then to fall to the controller to prove that they are being compliant. The tribunal held that the initial evidential burden is imposed on the ICO which is required to prove that an infringement has taken place. That evidential burden then naturally shifts to the other party once evidence of the infringements has been introduced by the ICO. The second issue which the tribunal had to consider was what is the appropriate standard of proof when imposing administrative fines? Is it the balance of probabilities, as in civil cases, or is it beyond reasonable doubt, as in criminal cases? It was accepted that the standard of proof with respect to the enforcement notice was the civil standard of proof, notably the balance of probability. The issue for the tribunal was whether the standard of proof for an administrative fine was the civil standard or the higher burden of the criminal standard. The tribunal considered the case of Hackett via HMRC 2020, in which the upper tribunal had recognised that there is a presumption in appeals against tax penalties that a civil standard of proof will apply 
and determined that the various factors outlined in the case applied in Entitlement Matter 2 and pointed towards the application of a civil standard of proof. The Tribunal also noted that the Data Protection Act 2018 sets out two distinct penalty regimes. Firstly, the monetary penalty regime for which appeal is to a civil tribunal and follows the same statutory provisions as civil appeals against other Section 1551 notices, such as assessment notices and enforcement notices, and secondly, those framed by reference to the criminal process under Sections 196-200 of the Data Protection Act 2018. It was therefore determined that the standard proof of both monetary penalty and enforcement notice is against the civil standard, namely balance of probability. And then the third issue before the tribunal was whether the analysis for a monetary penalty was appropriate. Dorset Dispensaries Limited submitted that the level of the penalty was disproportionate to the seriousness of any proven breach and failed to consider Dorset Dispensary Limited's position of financial hardship and ability to pay. It was also submitted that the ICO relied on incorrect assertion by the MHRA as to the number of documents found. The MIHA suggested that there were half a million documents. And in fact, an audit material undertaken by Dorset Dispensaries Limited identified that only 73,719 documents were recovered from the property, and of these, 7,351 contained no personal data, 6,229 only contained a name, 6,268 contained a name and address, and approximately 53,871 contained medical data. The tribunal accepted this evidence and that it was found to undermine the position of the ICO which had referred to over 500,000 documents when it had based its level of the monetary penalty imposed. The tribunal also concluded that the methods of storage used by the waste disposal business had not been appropriately secure and did not afford sufficient protection against accidental loss or destruction. This was determined to be a breach of integrity and confidentiality requirements of Article 5, Paragraph 1, Subparagraph F of GDPR. The tribunal also concluded that Dorset Dispensary's limited failure to devise adequate data processing policies had contributed to the breaches of relevant data processing requirements and the waste disposal business had been provided with no appropriate procedures to follow. Now that's an interesting ruling because that's clearly saying that a data controller can be penalised for not providing their data processor with clear enough information of what they expect the data processor to do with the data. The tribunal also found that Doorstep Dispensaries Limited failed to implement appropriate measures to ensure the processing was performed in accordance with GDPR under Article 24, Paragraph 1, as well as the breach of requirements of Article 32 of GDPR, in that Doorstep Dispensaries Limited failed to implement appropriate measures to ensure a level of security appropriate to the risk. Doorstep Dispensaries Limited accepted that it breached the requirements of Article 13 and 14 in relation to provision of information in its privacy notice. Having taken all of this into consideration, the tribunal decided that a monetary penalty was justified in the circumstances but reduced the amount to £92,000, which is a reduction of approximately two-thirds from the original fine. In reaching this conclusion, the tribunal noted in particular that the ICO was wrong to conclude in the original monetary penalty notice that a breach of Article 24, Paragraph 1 of GDPR was a contravention for which a monetary penalty may be imposed. That said, the Tribunal did conclude that Doorstep Dispensaries Limited had breached various other articles of GDPR for which a monetary penalty could be imposed. The Tribunal placed particular weight on the fact that in contrast to the over half a million documents compromise which was referred to in the ICO's original monetary penalty notice, only 66,638 documents containing personal data were recovered and only 53,871 of those included more sensitive special category medical data. So just over 10% of the figure relied on by the ICO when issuing the original monetary penalty notice. 
the tribunal otherwise agreed with and adopted the ICO's assessment of the factors set out in Article 83, Paragraph 2 of GDPR when assessing the amount of fine to impose. The tribunal noted in particular the ICO's conclusions as to the gravity of the breach and the risk of a significant emotional distress being caused to a vulnerable group of data subjects were they to become aware of the contraventions. The tribunal also concluded that a person responsible for a serious contravention of GDPR should not avoid a monthly penalty solely on the basis that they are their financial position and that the financial hardship of Dorset's dispensary limited had already been taken into account. The final issue before the tribunal was whether the analysis of whether an enforcement notice was appropriate. In relation to the enforcement notice, Dorset's dispensary limited had submitted that it was inappropriate and unnecessary to issue a coercive notice in circumstances where the data protection policy breaches identified at an earlier stage had already been remedied. The tribunal disagreed with that and found it was proportionate and reasonable for the ICO to issue an enforcement notice in relation to Dorset Dispensary Limited's data protection policies because the ICO had repeatedly pointed out the issue to Dorset Dispensaries and despite numerous attempts to satisfy the ICO of its compliance position, Dorset's Dispensaries Limited had failed to demonstrate adequate data protection policies more than a year after the serious concerns were first drawn to its attention. On the 11th of August this year, the Information Commissioner's Office here in the UK published a consultation on its long-awaited draft guidance for international transfers of personal data and associated transfer tools. These tools are relevant to anyone transferring or receiving personal data subject to UK GDPR and come in the form of a Transfer Risk Assessment, TRA, and an International Data Transfer Agreement, the IDTA. These will be the UK equivalents of the UK Transfer Impact Assessment, the TIA, and the standard contractual clauses, the SCCs, which we've mentioned numerous times here on GDPR Weekly Show. The use of UK-specific acronyms may demonstrate that the ICO is seeking to take its own part after Brexit. Alongside these documents, the ICO also published a UK addendum to allow use of the European Commission's SCCs in a UK context. So just what has been published, the TRA tool is designed to assist organisations to conduct risk assessments of their international personal data transfers following the requirements set out in SREMS 2. The tool utilises a three-step process for assessing transfer risks as follows. Firstly, assessing the circumstances of specific transfer. Secondly, would the IDTA be enforceable in the country where the personal data is being sent? And thirdly, is there appropriate protection of the personal data to protect against third-party access? Each of these steps is accompanied by guidance and flowcharts to help make the assessment in practice. The TRA is not intended to be mandatory, as organisations are also free to use their own methods to assess risk, but does offer useful guidelines as to the ICO's expectations. Turning then to the IDTA, the IDTA is proposed to be an approved standard form safeguarded under UK GDPR, the equivalent of the old standard contractual clauses or model clauses. It's composed of four main sections. Tables to include specific information about the restricted transfer in question, provision for extra protection clauses, an option to include commercial clauses, and a set of mandatory clauses which must always be included. And then turning to the addendum which looks at standard contractual clauses issued by the EU, the addendum is designed to be used alongside the European Commission standard contractual clauses to allow them to be used to safeguard a transfer under UK GDPR instead of using the IDTA. It makes limited amendments to the standard contractual clauses to make them work in a UK context. The consultation also indicates that the ICO may consider taking this approach with other jurisdictions standard data transfer clauses too to make the thing more business friendly. So you might be saying, well, why is all this necessary? Well, in general, these draft tools seem to indicate the ICO is keen to take advantage of its ability to carve its own part after Brexit. 
and it is good to see that the ICO's proposed documentation also clarifies the UK's position in relation to the European Commission's new standard contractual clauses, which we covered previously here on GDPR Week Show. The EU standard contractual clauses will not automatically apply in the UK following Brexit, and the draft IGTA is the UK's proposed alternative. Currently, the approved contractual safeguard of exports of data from the UK is the old version of the EU standard contractual clauses, which are now being phased out. The ICO also addresses the question facing organisations subject to both EU and UK GDPR in will they need to implement both the EU standard contractual clauses and the UK IDTA. The addendum means that this is not the case, allowing organisations to choose to adapt those EU standard contractual clauses which work in the context of UK transfers should they not wish to use the IDTA. Now, as we say, all this is out for consultation at the moment. It's not finalised at the moment. And the consultation does ask some fundamental questions which shed light on areas in the new UK GDPR that the ICO considers need clarification in connection with the IDTA. The most notable line of questions is around who's subject to UK GDPR under Article 3, whether a transfer is jurisdictional or territorial, and what a restricted transfer actually means. In particular, the ICO is consulting on whether to retain its current guidance that says a restricted transfer only takes place when the importer's posted in the personal data is not subject to UK GDPR. So what happens now? Well, following the consultation, the ICO will produce final documents to be laid before Parliament for approval. Once that's put before Parliament, it's proposed that it, the IDTA would come into force 40 days after it's laid before Parliament. The old EU standard contractual clauses would be disapplied for use for new transfers under UK GDPR three months after that, and the use of all old EU standard contractual clauses on ongoing transfers would need to cease 21 months after that. So what this really means is that organisations using the new EU standard contractual clauses, which came out a few months ago, can continue doing so for two years after the new UK IDTA comes into force. The consultation is open until the 7th of October this year, and responses can be submitted by completing the consultation paper and questions and sending them to idta.consultation at ico.org.uk. We will, of course, follow this consultation closely and bring you regular updates here on the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. When we talk about Brexit, it's very easy to forget about the effect that it had on the island of Gibraltar. Because, of course, we've talked a lot in episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show about UK GDPR and EU GDPR. But what about Gibraltar? Because it doesn't fall under UK GDPR. And of course, further to Section 6 of Gibraltar's European Union Withdrawal Act 2019, EU GDPR doesn't apply either. So what they have decided to do in Gibraltar is to take EU GDPR and essentially add some modifications to it so that it can be compatible with UK GDPR. This does produce quite a complex document and it's one that we are still examining. But in principle, it will mean that Gibraltar, or businesses based in Gibraltar, will be able to deal with both the EU and the UK using one common set of rules under Gibraltar GDPR. Once we have more clarity on these Gibraltar rules, we will of course bring you an update here on the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurance production. Until next time, bye-bye.